Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and drug use, we advise extreme caution to listeners under 13. Twenty-six-year-old Ross Ulbricht gripped the steering wheel as he raced through Austin's back roads. His landlord had just called. Ross needed to come home immediately. His apartment was flooded. Ross wasn't worried about his personal belongings. In fact, he didn't even live in that apartment but tens of thousands of dollars worth of illegal substances did. His apartment was his grow house. For the last few months, he'd cultivated thousands of mushroom spores. Now, in January of 2011, he had roughly 100 pounds of high-quality hallucinogenics. But with that one phone call, Ross realized it could all be lost. When he got to the apartment, Ross saw his landlord's car already parked in the lot. He sprinted up the steps, bargaining with the universe, please don't let him go into the bedroom, please. The door to his unit stood ajar. The only items inside, boxes of chemicals, fertilizer, and growing supplies, were ransacked, their contents dumped on the floor, and the door to the bedroom stood wide open. Suddenly, the landlord appeared, holding a white plastic tray full of sprouting mushrooms. He told Ross that he'd already called the police. Ross lunged past the landlord into the bedroom and slammed the door shut. He dumped every tray of shrooms into a few hefties until he had two psychedelic Santa bags stuffed with product. Then he fled. The police sirens were already audible in the distance. As he drove away, Ross realized how afraid he was. His whole body was shaking. If he'd been arrested, he could have gone to jail for the rest of his life. But it wasn't the punishment he was scared of. It was his failure. If he was in prison, he'd never fulfill his mission to change the world. He'd never set the masses free. Welcome to Kingpins, a ParCast original. I'm Howell Hargit. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're covering digital kingpin Ross Ulbricht, 
creator of the Silk Road, a.k.a. the Amazon for drugs. Next week, we'll follow the police investigation into the untraceable website and see how hubris and sloppy coding toppled his empire. By January of 2012, just a year after its launch, the Silk Road boasted over $500,000 a month in black market sales. 27-year-old Ross Oldbricht, who collected a small percentage of every transaction, was already on his way to becoming a millionaire. But his growing wealth hadn't changed his minimalistic lifestyle. Despite the money he was raking in, he lived out of a duffel bag. His clothes, even his socks, were hand-me-downs. He didn't create the Silk Road to make himself rich. It was a tool to spread his ideology. Every day, as the admin of the site, he educated his users. He posted about libertarian politics, economic theory, and the dangers of an overreaching government. He explained the importance of maintaining this free market, where anyone could buy anything without leaving a trace. He made sure that his kingdom was run with a conscience, guided by the golden rule and a succinct moral code. Nothing stolen, fraudulent, or expressly meant to harm. The Silk Road community was responsive to his thoughtful benevolence and likened their admin to a freedom fighter for the digital age. As he sat in a hostel in Hanoi, Vietnam, one night in late January, Ulbricht crafted his next post. He'd recently decided that he needed a new name on the site. Simply calling himself admin was too stiff, too cold, too establishment. The idea for the new moniker came from one of his anonymous Silk Road friends, username Variety Jones. One day, Jones asked over TorChat, an encrypted messenger, have you ever seen The Princess Bride? Ulbricht remembered the movie vaguely. He hadn't seen it since he was a kid. Jones continued, You know the history of the Dread Pirate Roberts? Again, Ulbricht was fuzzy. Variety Jones filled in the blanks. Dread Pirate Roberts was only a title inherited over the years. As each one retired, a new man assumed the name and the fearsome reputation that went along with it. Jones urged, Start the legend now. Immediately, Ulbricht understood the genius. He could mask himself behind the reference, laying the groundwork for plausible deniability if he were ever caught. Only two other people in the entire world knew that Ross Ulbricht had created the Silk Road a year earlier. But they also believed that he'd sold it off. Calling himself Dread Pirate Roberts only bolstered that story. People would assume there were multiple men behind the site, just like in the movie. He typed back in the encrypted chat, That's good. That's really good. When he announced his new handle on the site in early February 2012, the positive response from the users was overwhelming. He was their pirate king, their captain, and they were his loyal crew of dark web bandits. Nick Bilton described the response in his book, American Kingpin, writing, it gave an identity to someone who, until now, had no selfhood. One minute, Ulbricht was an anonymous, elusive figure behind a keyboard. The next, he was a feared pirate who was going to lead them into battle with the U.S. government. In addition to rallying his troops, assuming the identity of Dread Pirate Roberts, or DPR, allowed Ulbricht to better compartmentalize his life. In the real world, he could function guilt-free as the kind, down-to-earth Ross Ulbricht, a simple day trader. All his online crimes belong to DPR, Cyber Kingpin. This distinction became more and more important as the Silk Road grew. Anyone who actually knew Ross Ulbricht unilaterally described him as one of the smartest, kindest people they'd ever met. His mild manner and Boy Scout background was the perfect cover. Ross Ulbricht was the last person anyone would expect to mastermind a digital drug empire. Ross Ulbricht was born on March 27, 1984, 
and grew up in the suburbs of Austin, Texas. His parents owned rental properties in Costa Rica, where he spent most of his summers. He loved being in nature, was an avid surfer, and preferred reading books about history and politics to playing video games. He had a bit of a dual personality, even as a teenager. He was both an Eagle Scout and an active user of marijuana. He was also exceptionally bright. When he graduated high school in 2002, Ulbricht went to the University of Texas at Dallas on a full-ride scholarship. After Dallas, he attended Penn State University, earning a graduate degree in materials science and engineering. He spent his days in a lab, precipitating new crystallite structures out of thin air. Though he did well in the program initially, Ulbricht was left wanting. He didn't really want to spend the rest of his life indoors in a white coat. He wanted to do something that had more of an impact on the world. Ross found that purpose in a political club. He'd always been interested in politics, but while he was at Penn State, he discovered the College Libertarians Club. In the simplest terms, libertarianism advocates for personal freedom and the right to autonomy. Ulbricht started to apply these ideas to his own life. In particular, Ulbricht felt that the government had no business telling people what they could and couldn't do with their lives. He was a grown adult. If he wanted to smoke pot or drop acid, the state shouldn't be able to tell him he couldn't. He argued that plenty of things that were potentially deadly, like alcohol and fast food, were perfectly legal, just because the government had arbitrarily decided they should be. It shouldn't be up to the government to decide which dangerous substances are worth the risk. Everyone should have a right to choose for themselves. Ulbricht's interest in politics eventually overshadowed his lab performance. In 2009, he failed to qualify for a PhD candidacy. Accepting that his heart wasn't in the work, he left Penn State and returned to Austin to figure out what was next. He wanted to do something that manifested his libertarian values in the world, something that had an impact. He found inspiration in Paul Rosenberg's 2007 science fiction novel, A Lodging of Wayfaring Men. It detailed the establishment of an independent virtual society with no laws and no possibility of government oversight. The new civilization operated as an ultimate free market with its own digital currency. A complete liberation, the site exploded in popularity overnight. In the novel, the government panicked over the anarchist threat. To protect their own power, they launched an assault on the virtual world, bringing it down. The story of this not-so-distant future resonated with Ulbricht as did the words of economist Ludwig von Mises. There is no kind of freedom and liberty other than the kind which the market economy brings about. As the Internet further ingratiated itself into all aspects of daily life, Ulbricht saw that the digital age came with a cost. Corporations had the means to passively observe anyone who logged on. Every Google search, every purchase, every click, Every keystroke was tracked, data mined, and sold to the highest bidder. And if the government wanted more information on you, they simply demanded that data for free. Ulbricht liked to refer to them as the thieves. So in the summer of 2010, the 26-year-old idealist started working on his own free market website, one where users could buy and sell whatever they wanted completely anonymously. He called it the Silk Road, after the ancient Chinese trading route. He wasn't an experienced coder, but he was smart enough to teach himself what he needed on the fly. His vision was made possible by two key pieces of cryptographic technology, Tor and Bitcoin. Tor is an open source web browser that conceals your online activity and location. Bitcoins are a digital cryptocurrency. In 2010, they were believed to be totally untraceable. Once purchased, Bitcoins are treated like cash and traded directly from buyer to seller without leaving a paper trail. 
With this combination of an incognito browser and anonymous transactions, Ulbricht had exactly what he needed to build his online libertarian utopia. It took months to code, with plenty of trial and error. Once the site was built, he needed merchandise to stock it with. Though he wanted users to be able to sell anything they wanted, he knew that the most popular products would be drugs. Ideally, once the Silk Road caught on, other vendors would join him. But to get his drug market off the ground, he needed drugs. Having successfully grown a personal batch of psilocybin mushrooms shortly after grad school, Ulbricht decided that was his best investment. By January of 2011, he had cultivated 100 pounds of the stuff, and they were ready to move. The Silk Road went live on February 1st, 2011. The site blew up. By the summer, 300 different kinds of products were available for purchase from hundreds of vendors. Ulbricht was surprised and delighted by the like-minded community that naturally developed. Everyone felt like they had a stake in Ross's fight against the thieves together. Comrades in arms, fighting a holy war. They felt completely secure in their black market. No government agency would be able to track them through Tor. Ulbricht also cultivated a sense of openness on the Silk Road. Users posted detailed guides for safe drug use and other wellness issues. Ulbricht implemented a karma rating system for vendors based on buyers' experiences. This made the sellers more accountable, cutting down on scammers and rewarded those that provided good service and product. Soon, the Silk Road crossed into the mainstream. On June 1, 2011, four months after the launch, Gawker published an article written by journalist Adrian Chen. Quoting an anonymous Silk Road user, Chen wrote, About three weeks ago, the U.S. Postal Service delivered an ordinary envelope to Mark's door. He had ordered 100 micrograms of acid through a listing on the online marketplace Silk Road. He found a seller with lots of good feedback, added the acid to his digital shopping cart, and hit checkout. The day the article came out, the site saw a massive uptick in traffic, and an even bigger one the day after that. Ulbricht was both ecstatic and petrified. He'd actually done it. He'd finally dealt a serious blow to the thieves. But on the proverbial third day, the thieves struck back. Coming up, Ross Ulbricht takes measures to protect the Silk Road. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Now, back to the story. On June 5, 2011, United States Senator Chuck Schumer held a televised news conference. He'd recently discovered the drug trafficking website, The Silk Road. 
in front of reporters and news cameras. He called on the DEA and FBI to shut this one-stop shop for illegal drugs down. 27-year-old Ross Ulbricht watched the broadcast on his laptop, utterly numb. He realized how short-sighted he'd been. He thought the Gawker article was simply good publicity. He never imagined government officials would read it. But as Ulbricht watched Schumer summon the dogs, calling for his hasty demise, his fear hardened into determination. It was just like the novel, A Lodging of Wayfaring Men. The government had responded swiftly to his radical idea, too, because they were afraid. Good, he thought. They should be afraid of me. Instead of shuttering the site, Ulbricht set about shoring up its defenses. If this was war, he would fight every day until the end. Over the past few months, just as the general public had trafficked the site, so had more experienced dark web users. On a few different occasions, hackers had struck, and Ulbricht scrambled to regain control of the Silk Road. With the number of users rapidly increasing and the eyes of the thieves upon him, Ulbricht decided he needed a dedicated cybersecurity staff. He simply couldn't patch all the weak spots by himself anymore. He recruited Good Samaritan users from the Silk Road website, who had previously pointed out security holes. They had already volunteered their expertise. Now Ulbricht offered to pay them. Just like that, his million-dollar drug business had employees. There were only a handful of them, identified only by their usernames. But it was an important step for Ulbricht. Not only could he redistribute some of the responsibilities of running the service, but it also gave him an outlet to talk about his work. To the rest of the world, Ross Ulbricht was a digital currency trader. No one in his real life knew the pressure he felt, both as a business owner and as a criminal overlord. Now he had people to confide in, people who really understood what he was trying to do. Perhaps his most important new confidant was 45-year-old hacker, username Variety Jones. When Jones first heard about the site, he assumed it was a scam set up by the DEA. So he hacked it, finding a back door all too easily. Once he concluded the Silk Road wasn't a government mousetrap, he offered his security services to Ulbricht in late 2011 via TorChat. Jones believed in the mission and wanted to help. Given how easy it was for Jones to penetrate Ulbricht's code, the first order of business was a crash course in encryption techniques. He helped Ulbricht bolster his security protocols and install a kill switch on his laptop. It was a last option safeguard. If Ulbricht executed the designated keystroke, his hard drive instantly wiped. If the FBI came to arrest him, the laptop would be reduced to a paperweight. In addition to being a hacker, Variety Jones was a weed seed dealer. Even in the early days of the Silk Road, he developed a sterling reputation among buyers. He was so knowledgeable about his product, he could identify a seed strain just by looking at a picture. His years in the IRL drug trade meant he had more knowledge and understanding of a criminal enterprise than Ulbricht did. Soon, their conversations about the site's security grew to larger discussions about how to be a successful kingpin. Variety Jones respected that Ulbricht had a benevolent vision for the Silk Road, but he warned him about coming off as too nice. It was only a matter of time before someone would take advantage of his kindness. Jones wrote, There isn't anyone who knows me even a little bit that would ever dream of crossing me. If they did dream of it, they would wake up to call and apologize. Shortly after this conversation, Jones suggested that Ulbricht assume the character of the dread pirate Roberts. Not only would it give Ulbricht plausible deniability, but it would help him embrace a stronger, tougher part of himself. To enforce this separation, Ulbricht partitioned his laptop hard drive. Now he could run two different computers from the same machine, one for personal use and one for DPR. 
and never the twain shall meet. Jones stressed that Ulbricht's most crucial security measure was maintaining his anonymity. All it would take was one slip-up, one mispost from the wrong account with his real name attached, and he would be outed to the world. Through these conversations, a true friendship developed between Ulbricht and Jones. One day, after several months of correspondence, Ulbricht asked Jones over Torchat to describe his strengths and weaknesses. Jones typed back that Ulbricht's main strength was his understanding of the very real danger the site put him in. His weakness, his inability to discern between a garter snake and a copperhead. Recognizing something as dangerous when you think it's harmless. By the end of 2011, the Silk Road's business had grown to $500,000 in transactions a month. By late March of 2012, the number had ballooned to $500,000 a week, and it was only going up. 28-year-old Ross Ulbricht was making over $10,000 a day in sales commissions. His Bitcoin holdings would be worth close to $100 million by the end of the year, and that was the conservative estimate. If you were running a true Silicon Valley startup, Ulbricht would be preparing to take the Silk Road public or actively shopping for the highest bidder. Instead, he was fending off blackmailing hackers and worrying about the feds. Luckily, Senator Schumer's demands for action had gone mostly unfulfilled. In addition to climbing profits, the number of items available for purchase had grown into the thousands, way beyond weed, coke, and heroin. As Nick Bilton detailed in his book on Ross Ulbricht, there are digital goods, including key loggers, spy software, and other similar tools to hack someone's email or webcam. Forged documents, including passports, fake IDs, and even counterfeit cash. But by far the most extreme wares were listed under the heading weapons. Guns, grenades, bullets, even rocket launchers. Ulbricht loved the progression. It was exactly what he wanted for his free market paradise. But to some users, it was a bridge too far. Libertarianism was one thing, Uzis on aisle six was another. And Variety Jones agreed. He typed in a message, guns will scare off a lot of mainstream clients. Let grandma come here for her cheap Canadian pharma meds and not trip over a Glock 9mm on the way to the cash register. But Ulbricht refused to ban firearms from the Silk Road. That kind of regulation went against everything the site stood for. It tainted the mission. Variety Jones couldn't help but laugh at his moral righteousness. After all, at the end of the day, they were criminals. Drug dealers. Now they were arms dealers. Ulbricht further rationalized, as long as we don't cross the line in our pursuit, then we are only doing good. They weren't hurting people. They weren't lying, cheating, or stealing. They were only criminals by the government's arbitrary definition. Eventually, Ulbricht and Jones compromised. They built a sister site called The Armory, to redirect all the gun traffic on the Silk Road. It was a pretty simple job. They replicated the elements of the original site, slapped on a new logo, and wrote up a user guide detailing the easiest way to ship AK-47s around the world without getting caught by customs. The gun issue was the first major disagreement between Ulbricht and Variety Jones. It made the latter realize that he felt a great deal of ownership over the success and failure of the Silk Road. But technically, he was still just a lackey. So a few weeks after the launch of the Armory in early 2012, Variety Jones approached Ulbricht on Torchat with a demand. He wanted to formalize their partnership. He brought just as much to the Silk Road as Ulbricht did, and he deserved a stake. Ulbricht was shocked when he heard Jones's terms. He replied, I do well two ways, either a 50-50 split or me having it all. I don't do second fiddle very well. 
Jones's aggressiveness immediately sent Ulbricht on the defensive. Silk Road belonged to him, and it would always belong to him. He recognized that Variety Jones helped with the business, but that didn't mean he deserved partial ownership. Was this why he'd been so helpful in the first place? Jones warned Ulbricht that someone would take advantage of him for being too nice. Was this what he meant? Their conversation ended without resolution. Taking some time to reevaluate their relationship, Ulbricht avoided Jones's messages. They reconciled after a few days, but it marked a distinct change in their relationship. Ulbricht kept his guard up with Jones from that point on. He wouldn't be fooled twice. In the fallout, he grew closer with another anonymous friend, username Nob. They first met in April of 2012, when Nob sent an email. It read, I am a great admirer of your work. Brilliant, utterly brilliant. I will keep this short and to the point. I want to buy the site. Silk Road is the future of trafficking. Out of sheer curiosity, Ulbricht responded with a list price. He could have it for $1 billion. Nob balked at the figure, and sales talks quickly broke down. But the two men remained in regular communication. Nob liked Ulbricht's ideas and genuinely wanted to be in business with him. So he came up with an idea. Instead of buying the Silk Road, what if Ulbricht built another sister site? Nob would front him an investment to build it in return for a 20% stake. He wanted to call it Masters of the Silk Road. It would only deal in wholesale product, like a Costco for drugs, attracting cartels over individual users. Like Variety Jones, Nob was also a kingpin in the real world. He mainly dealt in cocaine and heroin, but also dabbled in money laundering and hired hits. He trafficked $25 million worth of drugs from the Dominican Republic to the U.S. every year. He had kilos of product ready to move. Nob sent Ulbricht $2 million in seed money to build the website. It would be more complicated to set up than the armory. To safely move such high volumes of drugs, security had to be airtight. As they worked on the cartel market, Nob and Ulbricht developed a rapport. In the wake of his rift with Variety Jones, Ulbricht found a new conciliary. While Jones was the master of marijuana strains, Nob educated Ulbricht about the heroin trade. He knew about smuggling routes and buyers all over the world. He had ideas on how to set up a dead drop system, avoiding the risk of mailing packages altogether. He also helped Ulbricht with more concrete contingency plans. He told him to apply for citizenship in a country that wouldn't extradite him to the U.S. If the feds ever moved on him, Ulbricht needed a secondary passport to flee the country and live out the rest of his days on a beach, spending his millions. Ulbricht was grateful to have someone else other than Variety Jones he could truly confide in. Soon, he and Nob talked shop on Torchat basically every day. Unfortunately, Nob was not the kingpin he pretended to be. He'd never trafficked kilos of heroin. He was the copperhead that Jones had warned Ulbricht about months before, the pit viper posing as a garter snake. Nob's real name was Carl Force, Agent Carl Force of the DEA. Coming up, DEA agent Carl Force tries to unmask the real Dread Pirate Roberts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
the National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Yeah. Look. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through. Here's a shot. It's in. This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Now, back to the story. Agent Carl Fors first heard about the Silk Road in the summer of 2011, soon after Senator Chuck Schumer tasked the federal government with shutting down the website. Now in his mid-40s, Fors had spent the last 13 years in the DEA, most of that time on the front lines of the drug war. Based in the Baltimore office, Force cut his teeth working undercover on the streets, infiltrating the ranks of drug dealers. To be more readily accepted in the criminal underworld, he took on the persona entirely, growing out his hair, piercing his ears, and covering his body in tattoos. Force was a method actor, thinking out every detail of his character's backstory and adjusting his behavior accordingly. When his fellow gangbangers went out for a night of partying, Forrest got drunk right alongside them. But eventually, he lost himself in the part. The line blurred between Carl Force DEA agent and Carl Force undercover criminal. Force started abusing drugs and was eventually arrested for a DUI. With the support of his family, he managed to get sober and keep his job at the DEA, though he strictly worked at a desk now. In the face of his current drudgery, it was easy to feel false nostalgia about his old life. When the Silk Road case came up, Force saw it as a chance to get back in the game without having to leave his desk. The FBI, DEA, Homeland Security, and even the IRS had all been trying to shut down the Silk Road for months. But so far, it was slow going. They'd managed to pick up some drug shipments and even a few dealers, but they weren't able to leverage those busts into high-level arrests. How could they? Everyone on the site went by anonymous handles and used encrypted Tor. There were no leads, no IP addresses to follow. Dread Pirate Roberts was clearly the operator of the Silk Road, but no one knew how to figure out who that was. None of the dealers they'd busted knew his real name. None of their inquiries ever got off the ground, even with the pressure from Schumer. Carl Force stewed over the predicament. In a minefield of aliases, who knew how many other people they'd have to flip before they got lucky and found a perp who actually knew the guy they wanted. The only person who was 100% guaranteed to know DPR's true identity was DPR. To reach him, Forrest needed to work undercover again, this time from the comfort and safety of his cubicle. Just as he'd done in his street-busting days, Force crafted a detailed new persona. He assumed the role of Eladio Guzman, a smuggler from the Dominican Republic. For an added flourish, Guzman was blind in one eye and wore a black patch. In April of 2012, he created an account for Guzman on the Silk Road with the username Knob. Forrest even snapped a profile picture, patch and all, to make himself look more legitimate. Then, for his opening move, he reached out to DPR directly with an audacious request. He wanted to purchase the website. Forrest wasn't prepared for the sticker shock of $1 billion to buy Silk Road, but it definitely made him more intrigued about the case. Based on the site traffic, the DEA estimated the Silk Road's value at $25 million tops. Ulbricht's figure meant the Silk Road was bigger than anyone at the agency imagined, and Force was determined to crack it wide open. Force had chosen the perfect time to make contact. Ulbricht and Jones were on the outs, and Ulbricht was looking for someone new to confide in as a digital friend. Over the next few months, calling himself Knob, Force slowly built a rapport with Ulbricht until they were chatting almost every day. 
They talked about everything, the business, plans for the future, even Ulbricht's paleo diet. Force hoped that in one of these chants, Ulbricht would slip up. Either he would reveal something too personal about himself, something that identified him, or he would be gullible enough to willingly trust Knob with his secrets and out himself. But so far, Ulbricht kept all personal details under wraps. Force had a good sense of who DPR was, his personality, his sense of humor, his moral code, but was no closer to figuring out his name or location. Surprisingly, he found that he really liked the idealist Ulbricht. Force had seen the devastating violence of the war on drugs firsthand. Ulbricht was trying to end that with the Silk Road. He didn't seem like a drug dealer. He felt like a friend. When Force handed in a proposal to his superiors on how to bust Ulbricht in late 2012, he almost regretted it. With this mission, Force would knock over the first domino that would eventually topple Dread Pirate Roberts. To put the plan in motion, Knob reached out to DPR. He was looking to sell a kilo of cocaine as soon as possible. Could Ulbricht help him find a buyer? Of course he could. He was more than happy to help. Was he or was he not running the Amazon of drugs? Within a few days, the deal was set. To make this bust more fruitful than those before it, Force made a special request for the sale. Because this was a large amount of drugs and he wasn't personally familiar with the buyer, he asked Ulbricht to arrange for a trusted middleman to broker the deal. Knob would ship the kilo of cocaine to Ulbricht's middleman, another user named Chronic Pain. Chronic Pain would only ship the drugs to the final destination once the buyer transferred payment into an escrow account. However, Force planned to raid Chronic Pain's house and arrest him the moment the package hit the porch. He was one of DPR's direct reports, way more likely to know his boss's true identity than any of the lower-level dealers they'd caught. And even if not, Chronic Pain still had valuable information about the inner workings of the site. But his close association to Ulbricht also made the bust more of a risk. The arrest of one of his lieutenants could make DPR feel threatened and send him underground. Force had given Ulbricht several tips on how to avoid punishment in hiding. If he decided to pull the ripcord, they'd never get another shot. Even with these risks, in mid-January of 2013, DEA agent Carl Force arranged to ship a kilo of cocaine to Chronic Pain. Through the deal, he learned that Chronic Pain was actually Curtis Green. He was a late 40s, Mormon family man who lived in Spanish Fork, Utah, 50 miles south of Salt Lake City. On the morning of the scheduled bust, Force sat on Chronic Pain's suburban street in an unmarked white van. He watched the front door through the window, waiting for a very special delivery. Just after 11 a.m., an agent dressed as a postal worker casually approached Chronic Pain's house and rang the doorbell. He was supposed to get Chronic Pain's signature accepting the package of drugs, airtight evidence for court. But no one answered the door. The agent called out, anybody home? Force sat in the van watching his plans unravel. He quickly grabbed a walkie and told the agent to just leave the package on the doorstep, forget the signature. The agent did as instructed, leaning the book-sized priority shipping box against the front door, then walking away. Force held his breath. He'd broken protocol and potentially forfeited $27,000 worth of the DEA's cocaine. He needed this to work. Come on, Curtis, take the bait. Curtis Green, a.k.a. Chronic Pain, was a heavy-set man who walked with the help of a pink cane. He shuffled out onto the front porch and picked up the small package. Then he looked up, staring directly at the unmarked white van. Carl Force nearly ducked in his seat. That was it. They'd been made. Sure enough, 
Curtis hobbled over to one of his garbage bins and tossed the kilo of cocaine inside. Then he went back into his house. The mission was a failure. Force and the other agents scrambled. What would they do now? They couldn't just leave the agency's drug sitting in a trash can. But in the middle of this panic discussion, Curtis Green suddenly re-emerged from his house. Even though the unmarked van was still parked in plain sight, Force watched as Curtis limped back over to the bins and fished out the small box of cocaine. Force couldn't believe his luck and honestly didn't care what changed Curtis's mind. The mission was back on. As soon as Curtis disappeared back inside with the kilo, Force grabbed the walkie. Take him. A swarm of DEA and SWAT agents descended on the house. They found Curtis Green in his kitchen, a pair of scissors in one hand, the freshly opened kilo in the other, and a plume of high-grade cocaine stuck to his face. As the agents searched Curtis's suburban home, they found $23,000 in cash and his computer open to the Silk Road website. Curtis's two small chihuahuas, Max and Sammy, yapped at the agents and bit their shoelaces. In the excitement, one of them crapped on the rug. The cocaine that exploded in his face upon opening started to take effect on Curtis. As he sat handcuffed in a chair, he talked a mile a minute. He had no idea where the kilo had come from. He thought the box was a package of N-bomb, a legal hallucinogenic. This was all a misunderstanding. Curtis pleaded with the agents, don't take me to jail. DPR knows everything about me. He could have me killed. Meanwhile, only hours after the bust, Ross Ulbricht realized something fishy was going on with the man he knew as Chronic Pain. He'd already sent him several messages throughout the day, all of them unanswered. Finally, Ulbricht wrote, Why aren't you clearing out your accounts? Get back to me ASAP. Two more days went by in radio silence. Then came another blow. $350,000 in Bitcoin had disappeared from several different Silk Road users' accounts. Variety Jones, who is still involved with the site in a strictly business capacity, traced the withdrawals on the back end. He found that the money had been swiped using Chronic Pain's admin credentials. In truth, Chronic Pain hadn't stolen anything. One of the DEA agents in the raid had, using his login. He'd been framed. But the real kicker came less than a week later. A Google alert on Chronic Pain's real name, which Ulbricht had demanded as a condition of employment, revealed an article about the arrest of Curtis Green by the DEA. The Silk Road was mentioned by name. Not only was Chronic Pain a thief, but now he might bring the entire Silk Road down to save his own skin. To figure out his next move, Ulbricht chatted with his newest confidant, Nob, having no idea that his consigliere was responsible for Chronic Pain's arrest. Together, they chewed over the options. What was more important for Ulbricht, getting his money back or sending a message? Nob knew plenty of people for either outcome. Ulbricht chose the former option. He typed to Nob, I'd like him beat up, then force him to send the bitcoins he stole back. Like, sit him down at his computer and make him do it. The theft really pissed him off, but not because of the financial loss. Honestly, $350,000 was small potatoes for Ulbricht these days. He was more upset that, once again, Variety Jones's prophecy had been fulfilled. As Ulbricht saw it, he had shown chronic pain kindness and once again been taken advantage of. As he sat stewing, waiting for Nob to make the arrangements, Ulbricht lamented to Variety Jones, who was still a friend. This was the first time he'd had to call in his muscle, and he didn't like doing it. But Jones thought he was looking at it entirely wrong. This was the criminal underworld, and he was a kingpin. Chronic pain had disrespected him. Ulbricht needed to send a message. Jones said, 
At what point in time do we decide we've had enough of someone's BS and terminate them? Ulbricht considered the question for a full 24 hours. Was he being too soft? Again? The next time he spoke with Variety Jones, he admitted, I would have no problem wasting this guy. Ulbricht was done being nice. It was time to step into his power. He reached back out to Knob. He needed to modify his request. He typed into the chat window, Can you change the order to execute rather than torture? Agent Carl Force gleefully typed back that a contract killing was no problem at all. He knew a guy who could do it for 80K. As they hammered out the details, Ulbricht reassured himself. He wrote, I've never killed a man or had one killed before, but it is the right move in this case. He was on the inside for a while, and now that he's been arrested, I'm afraid he'll give up info. Knob was all too happy to soothe Ulbricht's conscience. It was all in the name of business. After he logged off, Agent Carl Four started drafting his next mission proposal, faking an assassination. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. We'll be back next week with part two of Ross Ulbricht's story. We'll follow DEA agent Carl Force's fake assassination plot and meet the FBI team that finally penetrated Ulbricht's digital fortress. For more information on Ross Ulbricht, amongst the many sources we used, we found Nick Bilton's book American Kingpin and Joshua Behrman's reporting extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Dick Schroeder. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Abigail Cannon and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>